Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Van Damme loves Amsterdam, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. Um, it's been a minute. This time we're looking at the book. Football Against the Enemy by Simon Cooper. I thought you meant soccer against the enemy. Yeah, that's the one I read. Football against the enemy. Oh, we've got some variety here. Um, if you could let us know on our Twitter at Beards Book Club, which one are you using today? <laughs> but before we get into the book and start arguing over what football is called. Soccer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This is going to be a long episode for me. <laughs> <laughs> Three against one. <laughs> I'm screwed. No, Andrea said football. Like well, she football. said food. She said she football, said football in Spanish. So it's actually only <laughs> two against. Oh, never mind. I can't think. <laughs> um, but since it's been a minute since we filmed, and it's not been a minute since we spoke, but it's been a minute since we've we've recorded. What was the highlight of everyone's summer? We're going to start with Marita. My son built a fly rod uh, to do trout fishing, and he entered it for 4-H in both the county and state fair and won all sorts of awards. And then we took a guided trip trout fishing on the Mackenzie and caught all sorts of rainbows catch and release and just had an absolutely glorious time. And the rod he built performed wonderfully. And that was an absolute highlight. I love that. That is so great. I hope you had a wonderful time. It sounds really nice. We did. Thank you. Andrea, what was the highlight of your summer? I have gone down a mystery rabbit hole and I signed, I signed myself up for Brit box. Oh, good. And I watched, yeah, I watched the same, same, uh, sister Boniface mysteries. Mm -hmm. Now I'm on father Brown and then I'm going to do Shakespeare and Hathaway. I don't know why that isn't Bonifacio, you know, like, um, Jim from Irvine means death. Cause when I seen that advertised on the TV, I was like, Oh, it's Bonifacio, but no, it's Boniface. Weird. And then I started reading the uh, Agatha Christie mysteries, and now I'm like kind of obsessed with her. And I saw I, her new. I can't movie. wait to see the, the third movie, the the Hot yeah. in Venice one. Um, On BritBox, they have a ton of the uh, uh, Agatha Christie mysteries too. So I'm I'm like set for the next I don't know how long, just watching mysteries on BritBox. You're going to take it. the highlight of your summer right into fall. I said fall, not autumn, so I deserve praise. <laughs> <laughs> Bex, what was the highlight of your summer? I would say that even though it was technically work, it would be my new hire orientation for my full-time job. I met a lot of new professors that are coming into Baruch as well. We have the highest bunch of, like the largest group of new hires this year. And it's not because there's a lot of turnover, but because the state actually gave funding to convert like adjuncts into lecturers. So we had a lot more lines come available this year and I just met so many cool people and you know we went down to Union Square like we hung out outside of the orientation we went to the new the other new professor in my department we like went to Coney Island one day so it was like a cool Mm. way to meet people but also learn some of the inner workings of the school even though I've been working there for 12 years they don't give adjuncts the same kind of uh, welcome that Mm. they give full-timers so I learned a lot, but I met a lot of cool people. Fantastic. Nice. Did you get a hot dog at Coney Island? I, I did not. No, that's disappointing. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> How about you? What did you do? Well, I have been having a bit of trouble like 
absorbing new information. So I've watched the same show on repeat for, I'm not going to say how long, but it's called Shakespeare and Hathaway and it's a, a cosy mystery. And not only have I enjoyed it so much, but it's kind of like, because I've always been so scared of Shakespeare. I have done work on Shakespeare, but it terrifies me. Because this is silly and funny. I was like, I'm going to try again. So it's kind of like eased me back into the world of Shakespeare. And I'm going to have a go at some of some of the works. Nice. We're doing football against the enemy. Bex, do you have a, so- a synopsis for football against the enemy? I-, I have one for that. I also have one for soccer against the enemy. But <laughs> No, actually, so football against the enemy, obviously, it's original publication title or soccer against the enemy. If you decide to use control F and replace all of the original text, as clearly the editors of this book did. Oh, yeah. There was definitely one point where he said, and then he kicked the soccer around. <laughs> yes, there was also a point where there was a statue of a soccer. Okay. All right. Yeah. Control F, friends. Uh, Sometimes it's your friends. Sometimes it's not. Uh, Anyway. Context matters. Yes. (laughs) This is a book, as you mentioned, by Simon Cooper. It was originally published in 1994 and has been translated into a number of languages and revised a bit over the years. According to the ebook summary, which is the one I used from Soccer Against the Enemy, Soccer is much more than the most popular game in the world, an international lingua franca. Simon Cooper traveled to 22 countries to discover the sometimes bizarre effect soccer can have on politics and culture. At the same time, he tried to discover what makes different countries play a simple game so differently. Cooper meets a remarkable variety of fans along the way. He also illuminates the frightening intersection between soccer and politics. The result is one of the world's most acclaimed books on the game and an astonishing study of soccer and its place in the world. Now, I know I said soccer 800 times, but I'm going to take a little detour here before I tell you about the episode it was in. I'm going to give you all a little history of the word soccer, (laughs) because I feel like as Americans, we get a lot of shade for using the word soccer instead of football. As you should. Well, here's a fun fact about the word soccer. It actually comes from England, and it was used interchangeably with the word football until the 1980s, when at that point they decided that they didn't want to be associated with the Americans and started using football exclusively. The reason for this is that there are various forms of football around the world, including gridiron, what very similar to what we call American football. There are variations within that, but gridiron, rugby football, and associated football. So back in the day, the English would shorten associated to a soak, which they modified to, I don't know, make it a verb or something. Now, a soaker. And then it was later converted to soccer. So this is their word, not ours. Boom. Yeah, but you're missing one key detail there is that I'm not English. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm not sure saying the word coming from England is going to be compelling (laughs) to our Scottish friend. It's not changing anything here. (laughs) No, keep calling it football. And honestly, I do actually use it interchangeably myself ever since Ted Lasso. But I just, I feel like we always get a lot of shade for like having our own word for the game when it's really (laughs) not our word. Yeah, I think it's just more weird that your American football is called football when like less of the game is nobody kicks the ball. It makes no sense. It <laughs> makes like one sense. person kicks the ball. There are two players who kick them. All right. There yeah. was an evolution from soccer to rugby and rugby to football, and that is mm-hmm. how the name just got attached. Yeah. yeah. 
Charlie so Green, I think we so. should call them all by different names and none of them should be called football, but that's just my that's just my take. That's my hot take. I'll go. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and I hope I as love, well as like I love when um I hear people refer to it as footy. I actually footy, really yeah. love that. I that's think the we funnily enough, the Scots word for football is football. Like if we were like you're going to the football today. Well, it always basically. amused me too that like football in Spanish, like the word for foot in Spanish is not foot. Yeah. So, it's that, clearly... yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Wait, what is the Spanish word for foot? Pie. So it would be pie ball. No, it'd pie be ball. like pelota de pie or something. Like that it's sounds not... cool. <laughs> that sounds cool as fuck. <laughs> but so does football. So But that's, that's how fine. we get the, the foot fingers, right? Yeah. We know de los de pie. Yeah, of the foot. <laughs> I love it. I just, anyway. Danny, Danny is in my head now. But yeah, anyway. So now that you've got your rant over with, <laughs> where in the um, series or which episodes do we um, see this book? Okay, so the book makes an appearance in season two, episode six, The Signal. Beard is shown sitting at his desk in the coach's office reading it. This is after practice and at the same time that Ted delivers his BLT for the secret sandwich switcheroo. So that's kind of the big time, but it does appear on his desk repeatedly throughout the series. So it's it never goes away. It's just that's yeah. the kind of in your face moment of it. And just one more thing before we get started, uh, trigger warnings for racism, xenophobia, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, thanks, Bex. And we're going to dive straight into it with you, Marita. All right. So I'm going to hop around to a few things. But the first thing I want to talk about is the author, um, Simon Cooper. And so starting to read this book, the book is very, to use an American term, inside baseball. So, you know, I'm an American from rural Oregon. Portland, Oregon actually has a pretty robust soccer culture, but it never really got hit in the media market or covered. So for someone from rural Oregon, soccer is certainly international soccer. I have no frame of reference for anything that happened before the mid-90s. It just didn't exist in my world. So given the timing of this book, uh, like when it was written and and my cultural context, there was so many references in the book that were taken as a given that it was hard for me to sort of make immediate sense of anything. Also, you know, the the last book we read that was really about soccer was uh, the Joe McGinnis book. Cooper has a much drier style, right? McGinnis is in it and he's writing about how ridiculous people are, but he's also writing about how ridiculous he is and it engages in just a different way. There was all these times where there were sort of these things that seemed like they might be sort of asides or him being ironic and I couldn't really tell. So I actually had to go and and watch videos of Simon Cooper talking. There's plenty of those on the internet. He does all sorts of commentary and he, he's brilliant. I like, from watching these videos, like I, I really like him. Um, there's a relatively recent one at the Oxford Union where he's taking a debate stance. Someone can yell at me for getting what the Oxford Union does wrong, I'm sure. But basically about Oxford public school boys destroying Britain um, <laughs> and how class is basically the basis of British politics. Um, he's not from England. He was born in Uganda to South African-born parents. And he's actually, you know, I did the Wikipedia run, right? So he's named for his grandfather, Simon Meyer Cooper, who was a Supreme Court judge in South Africa that was assassinated in 1963. And so then his family moved. His father was an anthropology professor in the Netherlands. And then he moved on and was educated at Oxford, right? So he definitely speaks in the tones of someone who is Oxford educated. He fancy. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, and especially like if you watch the what he said at the Oxford Union, he uses that language to 
turn it back on other people sort of with that educational background and with that class. And and sort of having that context, I, I had a little bit easier time in the book because it was a little easier for me to pick without the background of what was happening and who all these people in soccer were having any knowledge of international soccer before the mid-90s, right? It, it made the book a little easier to to understand is not the right word. I sort of caught the style a little bit better. So I actually like do really like him. The the biggest issue I had with this book and it's it's just a personal preference is I tend to like deeper dives. And there are so many places in this book where he makes an off-hand reference to something or shares an anecdote that colors an otherwise sunny discussion of someone. And I kept finding myself like just stuck at those points, kind of screaming like, what? <laughs> um, like, like I felt like we needed a lot more explanation and I couldn't tell if it's just because I'm an American who doesn't know anything or if this was just something he kind of dug out. Does that make sense? It does to me because I was going to say one of the, one of the exact same things was he would mention things that he thought you already knew. And I suppose if you're, if you're reading a football book, he probably expects that you know about football. And I don't really. So I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, where I grew up in a football family, and I didn't catch everything. I wasn't like I was obsessed. My family wasn't obsessed with football, but it was around enough, right, that I caught some of the, like, I remembered some of the things and, like, hearing about it when we were trying to watch some of the games, you know, whenever. But, like, yeah, so that's really, I, I didn't even think about that, but that's really interesting. Yeah, well, and so I, I think another thing that's easy to miss, you know, because this book is from, uh, do you have a publication date? Early 90s, I think? Cooper was pretty 94. young when he Okay. We really have like Cooper is is a very well-known football writer for a reason, right? He was breaking ground, I think, in the way that he wrote about things. But because it was so popular, there are so many people doing more of that now that it doesn't seem as special now, probably to people approaching it for the first time as it really was in the context of its time. But coming back to an example of kind of these jarring things is when he's talking about Helenio Herrera and his wife and he's you know interviewing them and they seem like this cute little old couple and they're doing like little old couple things and then right in the middle of it they talk about a description of him as a cutthroat man who wanted to win and so I'm going to quote the book cutthroat was not the half of it told by doctors that his young forward Tacola had a heart murmur Herrera took the news with faint interest then when Roma visited Cagliari took Tacola along for the ride but made him train with the team on a cold beach the morning before the match Tacola caught a fever, watched the match, and died. Right? So, like, we've got this cute little old couple and this, you know, cheerful, if colorful coach. But in the midst of it, he basically, apparently, ignored health issues of a player, which is something we've certainly seen in American football, right? That led to a 24-year-old's death. And it's the sort of thing where in the book, it's two paragraphs. And, you know, he uses it to sort of color this otherwise cheerful portrait of this guy. But... That's the kind of thing I'd maybe want to see a little bit more of. Yeah. And I think Cooper is doing something interesting here because he's recognizing that when we meet with someone and we have mutual friends and they're cordial, we tend to think well of them and that our socialization is just to get along and want people to be, you know, we want to be successful. We want people to be, but it leads people to really overlook some pretty horrific behavior. But yeah, holy hell, I wanted to know more about that. And there were several places like um, the murder of the Colombian soccer player after the own goal in the World Cup, right? That's a whole book for me. And I'm sure it's a whole book for but yeah. I think with this book, I I wanted sort of more details on on things, and it was this was just broader strokes. So Cooper, the next book he published after uh, Football Against the Enemy, called Ajax: The Dutch, The War of Football in Europe During the Second World War. 
that's apparently a much deeper dive. I was reading reviews of it. I really want to read this book actually, because it goes into football in the Netherlands, like during World War II and gets at sort of the more current attitude that Dutch folks tend to have this national myth-making where they were the resistance in the war and they were, you know, helping Jewish people. And a lot of Cooper's research apparently kind of undermines that national myth-making in a way that's well-researched and uses sort of more personal, deeper dive anecdotes. And I'm like, wow, I really want to read that one. I think that that would have been the book I would have wanted to see on the desk. Damn it, Beard. Yeah, come on, Beard. Get it together. <laughs> um, but that said, that said, for what this was, um, I, I think Cooper is a, a brilliant writer. I think he's funny. I think like on a personal level, like I would love to be at a pub with him when someone started making some ridiculous right-wing argument, because I think it would be fun to watch him destroy them in like oh, the driest yes. possible way. Oh my God, that would be brilliant. <laughs> That's an invite if you're listening, if you're listening, Mr. Cooper. <laughs> um. So yes, I, th that was just the the little struggle that I had with the book that I think sort of some Americans might run into. I, I think it's still worth reading, and and Americans who run into that, I, th I think it's just worth considering and and probably pressing through. But this is a podcast about Ted Lasso, and so I wanted to talk a little bit because I think it's not a mistake that this book was so consistently on Beard's desk throughout. Right, this is clearly a book that Brendan Hunt is incredibly familiar with, and I think there's a lot of things from the book that appear in what the various nations have done that sort of pop up in Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the first things that popped out to me was when talking about uh, Herrera, there, there was this discussion of singing on the bus after losing. And so to quote the book and Herrera within the book, when we lost a match, I would say, now we'll sing. And we'd sing for hours on the bus home. When we lost in Sevilla once, we danced on the bus. He took a, two, a few steps, the flamenco, right? So we've got the scene that looks so much like the scandalous birthday party they had for Sam after a loss in season one and nicely highlights this cultural clash, right? Where Ted comes in, he thinks it's perfectly appropriate to have a birthday party for someone even after they've lost. The press is absolutely aghast, right? Because that's a very not British thing to do. You don't celebrate after a loss for any reason. But that very much sort of brought that out to me. I also thought that a lot of the discussion of the Dutch playing style and why it can be hard to coach them was really lasso for me. Another quote from the book is, by contrast, foreigners who come to Holland all make the same discovery. The coach doesn't say that much. It's always the players who are talking. right? And it goes on to say, Dutch players love to talk and interviews in soccer magazines run to four pages. When the Dutch go abroad, they carry on talking and in the vernacular too, they advise their managers on tactics and team selection. Right? So... You see the start of this when we have uh, Jan Maas, right? <laughs> um, like he says exactly what he thinks. Everyone knows that that is specifically because he's Dutch. Um, he doesn't shut up and he has strong opinions and he will sometimes, you know, he is the one when they're playing the false nine who comes flat out and says, actually, we can, we can still do this. So you see that there, but you see it other places too. And the book points out that the Dutch soccer team, despite being from a very small nation, right, really wins a lot. And so the book says it's precisely because the Dutch talk so much they can play the way they do. A player must understand his role. He has to know when to overlap or cover for the man in front of him, when to leave his man and chase the ball. British players play the British brand of 
442 from childhood on, and so they have little to learn about it. So there's a couple observations here, right? And the first one is echoed in Lasso. Like at the start of season three, when Roy is starting to try to do tactics, Roy comes in with this idea of the 442 because it's an old school soccer thing that every kid in England grew up playing, right? And we're sort of, Roy is missing here, right? That many of the players on the team are not English, right? But Roy says, right, these little pricks have played 442 ever since they were kids, which means they'll always know what they're supposed to do, and more importantly, where they're supposed to be at every fucking minute of every fucking game against every fucking opponent. But the book goes on to point out that that means when the Brits get put in any situation that they haven't kind of seen before, the players don't know how to think that through and react and work with each other to do things in the way that the Dutch do. You can't play one way without understanding how your opponent is going to be playing. Like, oh, no, that doesn't make sense. Absolutely true. But so, yeah, so it comes down to for Richmond, right? The 442 is definitely not going to be the path to victory for them. And so then we have Ted who de novo synthesizes total football in his Amsterdam hallucination, right? But no matter, he brings it in and it doesn't work. And when it starts working, is when the players start taking ownership and the players start talking. And really notably, it starts working when Jamie takes ownership of what his role should be and flat out tells the other players and tells the coaches what should be what should be done in the game strategy. And it's just so reflective of this description of, of Dutch football. There's also a passage in the book, uh, I'm quoting again, the drawback to talking a lot is that personality clashes happen. Holland in 1990 could have won the World Cup, but the players preferred to squabble. So this discussion of personality clashes, I think, works really well in Ted Lasso, too, because it comes down to why Ted is successful as a coach and why Nate wouldn't be in that environment, right? He builds the way, he builds the team in a way that they can meld and bridge these gaps, right? They have all these personality clashes early on, but the way t- Ted builds his team they can work together. And when they talk, they don't have these massive personality clashes. So they can actually make use of this player's talking and thinking for themselves in a way that's productive. Ted's coaching strategy of being hands-off, letting them think it through, but his coaching isn't nothing. It's him bringing the players together and mediating these clashes is what makes their total football work. There is something in the book that I wondered if it was referenced in a joke in Ted Lasso. So, quoting the book, it says, Before the Dutchman Ray Adeveld came to England for a trial with Everton, he phoned John Metgod, formerly of Nottingham Forest and Spurs, to ask his advice. And this is for a coaching role, right? And the advice was, quote, get a haircut, wear a suit, and yell a lot at practice. All right. So because the first time we see them out on the practice field in the first season, I think it's in episode two, like in Biscuits. Oh, sorry, I said practice field. My apologies, Michaela. They were on the training pitch. <laughs> we have this exchange between Ted and Beard. And Beard says, remember what you said to me our first day coaching at Wichita State? Lose the ponytail. Lose the ponytail, right? That is the get a haircut, right? <laughs> And Beard, of course, also yells a lot at practice. Yeah. So I just thought that little thing in there, knowing how well Brendan Hunt clearly knows this book. But also Nate bought a suit and yelled a lot at practice. Ooh, yeah. And his hair did change quite a bit. That's a great mm. observation. So so I just thought that little line was interesting. I'm like, mm. I, I wonder if they pulled that from there. I wonder if, they, I mean, so much in, so as a shout out, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility, certainly. Yeah. 
I also wanted to talk quickly, uh, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but about the way Lasso treats superstition and superstitious beliefs. Cooper writes in his book about racism in football and also in football coverage. Uh, and I know um, some of y'all are going to discuss that, I think, in a little more depth. But he covers how Africa has been left out of the World Cup in the past. That's improved considerably since when Cooper wrote this book, but there's still issues with it, certainly. And even more so, um, how coverage of African teams is very othering. And othering is my term, not his. But in particular, I'm going to quote him again. So this is from Cooper's book. For most African players, witchcraft is little more than a form of superstition. No one I met in Africa began telling me about witchcraft, even though when I asked, I got answers. And he follows that up after some discussion of Muti, which is talked about as, you know, like a Southern African form of witchcraft that some players follow. Quoting Cooper again, he said, by cross-examining every Black African World Cup team about witchcraft the moment they step off the plane, we imply that they are believers first and world-class soccer players second. We hate it when people ask us if we burn chickens before a match, the Cameroonian Francois Omambiak said during the 1990 World Cup. Omam would probably not mind it if this were the 10th question he was asked, but it is always the first. The second is, did you play barefoot as a child? Jesus. Right. I, just, I remember like, that part in the book and I was just like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Like, it wasn't no. about the author and how he wrote it. It's just the fact no, that no, no, that's no. the just reality. The fact that, that is how the press behaves. And I think... And they still do today. Oh, they do. Oh, yeah, they, they do. Yeah. And so I was thinking about it and it's interesting because um, the film... Okay, so it's a movie. It's technically a film, but Major League, right? Major League is is something that Ted Lasso clearly owes a lot to. It's there's definitely a lot of structurally structural similarities. There's a lot of homage there, right? Especially in season one, right? So Major League is super guilty of playing with this trope. If you've seen it, because there's a Cuban baseball player played by Dennis Haysbert who's a firm believer in voodoo, and it's it's a big joke through the movie basically and yes i i am aware that the movie is comedy right but it's definitely playing with the stereotype of a minoritized player mm -hmm. and so if we look at lasso on the other hand it doesn't actually shy away from superstitions but it largely puts it on the white folks which is a really interesting way of sort of twisting that around right because the training room ghosts we have this whole episode that's built around the ceremony to appease them that's ted <laughs> right that is ted and how much of it's actually superstition and how much of it is his, you know, gamesmanship for trying to build the team. I think that's up for debate. But the, the ceremony is all Ted. It's, you know, it's not made out to be witchcraft or voodoo or something like that. It's foreshadowed in the first episode when Rebecca asked Ted if he believes in ghosts. And he very credulously says, yes, but mostly I believe they need to believe in themselves. And we see kind of echoes of this through the show where there's other people who do some sort of superstitious things but you know we see like the star wars catholicism reference later in the show's run when higgins and ted interact like when ted makes the sign of the cross to give higgins good luck explaining the luke leia kiss to his sons right we, we see that there and so it's this interesting way that lasso handles the superstition that frequently comes up in sport that it doesn't handle it in a way that turns any of the characters characters from minoritized groups into caricatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it's also an interesting point to bring up because we see so much superstition in, in sports that when it's from a culture we're a part of, we don't really see it as something all that weird. Yeah. I mean, I've seen all sorts of weird superstitious rituals. You know, if you watch baseball games, especially people will do things with their batting gloves or whatever, like they have to touch something exactly five times. And people are like, you know, oh, yeah, that's just what they do. When it's from another culture, people and the press have this tendency to make it out to be 
some deficiency yeah. of the other culture yeah. uh, in a way that I really, uh, that Cooper points out in the coverage of African soccer, that I appreciate that when Lasso played with those superstitions, they didn't put it on other groups like mm-hmm. that. Because, like, realistically, are Western religious rituals inherently and objectively less weird? Like, than like, to, anything, to people they're from other weirder. Cultures. Yeah, I was agreeing. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, but we just don't see it that way because mm-hmm. we grew up sort of steeped in it, right? It's the local mythology. Mm-hmm. So, so I do love that that Lasso sort of took that element of sports and and didn't put it on the minoritized groups. Hi, Greyhounds. If you'd like to join in in the conversation. Tweet us at Beards Book Club or email us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now back to the podcast. Awesome, Marita. As usual, really enjoyed that. I think it was an excellent way to start. Andrea, we're going to kick the football to you. You're going to footy over to me? That, that's not how you use that. <laughs> She's going to soccer over to you. That hurts even my soul. <laughs> Thanks for slapping it over to me, guys. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was an interesting book. Um, it felt both dated and completely relevant to today. And, and I had difficulty reading it in the sense of like, I just found it really depressing. In fact, when I read the book about Argentina, I cried like, because I, I had family living through that. And it was just like, I just was, uh, yeah, like I just I felt the whole book was depressing, right? Because it's a sad thing about this sport that's fun and people love and it turns into, it turns ugly. And politics are completely ingrained in all of it and his whole point. <laughs> so a reminder that humans can ruin anything is that? Humans will ruin everything wonderful. Oh, yeah, my, uh, just before we started this, my mom was like, well, football's not political. And I was like, really? <laughs> I can, I'd mentioned five things there. I could go on. <laughs> well, and it's really interesting, especially because, so so you're from between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Sorry, you're from between Edinburgh and Glasgow, right? No, I'm and calling so- it Glasgow now. Glasgow. <laughs> That's the morning I've had. So it was interesting. One of the inside baseball sort of things in the book was when he was talking, and I think you're going to talk a bit about this. So I took like a whole chapter trying to figure out if the old firm was referring to Rangers or to Celtic when in fact it's it's the rivalry, right? Um, so that was something I actually had to, I just didn't have the cultural context for. I had to go yeah. look for. You should have um, just messaged me. Yeah, it's both of them, the old firm. Yeah. <laughs> Kyla, what the hell is the old firm? <laughs> Tell me more about yeah. Scottish football. Yeah. Um, so I didn't read every single chapter. And because some of them felt more interesting to me than others, I kind of jumped around a lot. I definitely skipped to the I wanted to read the one about Argentina. I think I read it first. <laughs> um, and Pele and like jumped around to Africa and Scotland. And I was just jumping all over. Um, and so again, some of them just felt more relevant. Some of them I had more, more of a connection to. You know, in some ways... I thought this honestly felt a little bit more like a memoir than like a real study or exploration. Cause like it was, it just kind of felt like it was all coming from Simon's point of view, which like, that's not a criticism. I'm just, we're saying like, I, th- I think maybe to Marita's point about like, I want to know more. Like he was just kind of saying about this stuff that happened because in his world, like in his mind, in his world, it was all what he lived where it's like, well, no, 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 wait, tell me about that. I agree. It's like some of those things that come up, you're just like, I want to know so much more about this. 
Well, and it does read to some extent as a travelogue too. So yeah, I see your point there. Yeah. So a lot of what he talked about made complete sense to me and I could relate it. Like not, not about the individual stories, but just as a casual fan of the sport, I, or of any sport, just a casual sports fan in general, like I have a hierarchy of teams I follow, right? Like I literally start with like, you know, in the national level, I'm like, it's Chicago, Illinois, the Midwest, like I slowly, like the Midwest, right? And then once we get out of the Midwest, it completely turns political. Two teams from other, it's, it's like if I have a friend living there, right? Like Bex, I was one, one time I was like, hey, New York, like, right? Like it's... <laughs> I know it's funny because I'm not a New York sports fan right. of anything. <laughs> I know, but it's just like in my head, or it'll be like, oh, it's a red state where, you know, a Republican state over a Democrat state. Like, you know, like I, I 100% inject politics into it, you know? And so I just thought that was really interesting. And even and then again, yeah, same thing. I think I'm a huge fan of like the Olympics and stuff. And I think it's the same thing in football. I'm watching it, uh, you know, it's got to be Italy, United States or, or Argentina, and then I'll slowly, you know, go down my list. And then, yes, then it becomes the... Who's I always root for, like, Caribbean teams first. So, Drea, are you now an Iowa fan because of all the fans that apparently flipped Trump off at the game yesterday? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Wait, like, it was, a, was it a football game? And he, like, arrested or something? Do you know me? I mean, to the point, you know, Florida. I don't ever want Florida to win every, anything ever in anything. Is that new though? Sorry. Unless they're playing the Yankees, then they can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's that new. That's you. That's wow. you. See? Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so um, he had this quote in the introduction that intrigued me. He was saying the homegrown fanatics I met. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. The homegrown fanatics I met in the early '90s in towns like Glasgow, Budapest, and Buenos Aires are giving way to new fans like Amit. That, of course, reveals the truth about the changing world that goes beyond soccer. So Amit was someone he had mentioned in the introduction that he had met and was talking to. And, you know, he goes on to, to speak about people beginning to follow teams that they have no immediate relation to. And I've noticed this phenomenon, like when an underdog succeeds, like you were just saying about like anyone in the Caribbean. Yeah, like the second an African team starts going high in the World Cup, I'm like, yes, you know, like I'm over here rooting for Argentina and stuff. But it's like, I want that team to succeed. Yeah. And sometimes the most popular team will lose fans when their opponent is at that level. When when their opponent is someone who's at that level for the first time and like that that underdog thing. Mm-hmm. And I, so I feel like that's something newer that didn't happen before. That is definitely more of a something that has grown over the years. And I think he was kind of referencing starting to see that back in the 90s. Because I didn't do it back then, but now I think, and again, I think it's also the the fact that we're able to see it more. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I Right. I've, I've talked before on this podcast. Absolutely. Like we would, we would figure out when Argentina was playing and I'll huddle around the TV at whatever time of night. And we only watch the one game now. Yeah. You're I'm turning in watching all these other p- people. And like, I think that's one of the draws of the Olympics is that like those personal stories and you start hearing about, like they give you all of this context and you're seeing all of these other all these other teams and players and, and you've got social media now so you get yeah. the story you get emotionally invested into them and i feel like soccer before football before what didn't didn't allow for that well, well yeah so i mean to speak to that point yeah i think people have a hard time previous to media coverage like relating to the team so yeah um oregon has you know they have the timbers and the thorns now right which uh, there's sort of a, a history there anyway but of the major you know 
four sports if you do baseball, basketball, uh, football, and hockey. Portland only has one team. We have the Trailblazers. So seeing who folks I grew up around were fans of in the other sports was really interesting, and baseball in particular. Right. So the nearest teams are San Francisco and Oakland. If you drove to a game, that'd be about nine hours. Um, and then Seattle, which is, you know, from my part of Oregon, probably closer to four hours away. Seattle's games, Seattle is kind of the natural choice, the Mariners for people now, because there's so much game avail- availability on TV. But most of the people I grew up with were either Atlanta Braves fans or Chicago Cubs fans. And the reason for that is because as cable TV came in, we got TBS and we got uh... WGN. And so those are the games you could see. So you were a fan of these teams so far away, not for any connection to the team, but because that was the only team you could connect to geographically. No, but that was the only team you could see. Now you can watch anybody look at Wrexham, right? Yeah. I was going to say, it reminds me of like when my husband was like, I'm going to watch this Tottenham documentary. And I'm like, well, um, I can't be arsed moving. So I'll just watch it with you. Got fully invested in the whole thing and cried three times. Couldn't give a shit about football, you know? So it's like, (laughs) there's so many ways to connect right and Wrexham is this Wrexham exactly Wrexham Wrexham is this tiny team from Wales who just did a tour playing exhibition matches across the US that were very well attended because everyone can see them now yeah it's a very different environment with the way media is spread and you mentioned uh, the Olympics and like social media and all of that like I remember cheering for not even knowing what the sport was before the Norwegian curling team right? because they had these pants and it was like a whole social media. They had a Twitter account for their pants and it was, and so like I was watching curling and I'm rooting for them over like American team that like, that's what we're really good at curling in Scotland, by the way, as well. So, okay, well they can be my second choice then, but you know, (laughs) and, and in the, the world cup that just happened, like Jamaica, getting further than than any Caribbean team had ever gotten. And so I was rooting for the ladies there to win. And, you know, just things like that, because it's the exposure to it is so different. I love that you address that. Yeah, I also I mean, I think it's interesting and kind of back to the point about how European media in particular covered African teams in the World Cup, right? The choice of who gets covered and how it gets covered has such an impact. You know, I um I was in study abroad for the 96 Olympics, so I was in New Zealand, and I'd only ever seen American coverage of the Olympics. Like, I had no idea there was so much equestrian and sailing mm-hmm. at the Olympics, because that is what New Zealand wins, right? So that is what was on TV there. And then the next Olympics, I was uh, in Britain. For most of that and that coverage was again entirely different because people show the sports they locally win so now we yeah. have this olympic coverage where there's four or five different live channels right that you can subscribe to and see everything happening live and you can watch any sport you want you can get screen it. and screen now oh yeah it's a different world man yeah i love it i love it he has this quote in the book uh, later in the book i'm not i don't remember exactly what chapter where he says soccer and basketball games said kubilis had been vital in the struggle for independence and I agree. Basketball is the one sport. Um, I my, my my relevant story to this is um, my husband and I went to Hungary and Romania once. And it was completely an indulgent trip for me to see Vlad Dracul and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Bathory's castles and like went to Transylvania. Did the Do whole you like thing. vampires or something? Yes. My <laughs> went to see my people. The amazing thing was, is the way we were treated like royalty there. And it was because my husband is a rabid Chicago Bulls fan. And he literally, he wore bull shirts all the time. And so he's, you know, the six foot four black guy wearing a bull shirt. Every single person in Romania 
and hungry pointed at him and went Michael Jordan and like it was like Michael Jordan you know and they treated him they treated him like he was Michael Jordan there was even a point so actually when we went to the Vlad Vlad Dracul's castle you have to walk way way up to go to mm-hmm. it my husband's like I'm not going like again I love him <laughs> this trip was for me he's like you go ahead and the the guy that was like kind of driving everybody around was like I'll take you to you know like you come with me you know come with me and he was like, my husband later was just like, he's like, yeah, I was sitting at this table with all these, these little people because he's, you know, because he's so tall. <laughs> they're all smiling at him and giving him food. And like, it was just like, I love that. it was right. It was this thing that like, yeah, like brought us all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, it was like, it was part of, it represented for them something that this man who they knew he wasn't Michael Jordan. Yeah. Right. But like, that didn't matter. They were just so pleased to see this guy. It was really funny. I was just like, I feel like, I feel like because of that, that like we had an experience there that, right? Like, yeah, that would you wouldn't get otherwise. Someone yeah. else does. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And also, it was really cool. I was going to say, how was the castle though? Just oh, while we're on the subject, yeah. I sat and I, I went into Vlad's uh, his main room where supposedly he had all the people on the spikes, mm-hmm. you know. And I stood there and I was like, yes. <laughs> I am I am Vlad Dracul. This is my empire. Anyway, so yeah. that's a whole other podcast, guys. And then uh, you know, he he talked a lot about um Germany and and after the war and Holland and how, you know, the way that the politics played so deeply into it. And it's really interesting because I mentioned earlier I've been watching Father Brown and Sister Boniface. And both of them had an episode about a priest from a sister city in Germany coming to them in the, in this feeling of like, we have to all get along now. And like, this is our sister, sister city in Germany. And this priest is going to come here and and pray with us and all this stuff, you know, and we all have to put down our, you know, our rivalry and how tough that was for them. And so just really interesting. Like, I I feel like politics and sports were both working together, even religion, right? Like at this time, like they were all kind of working together to try to be like, we, you know, we can move on from this thing, but the war was, I mean, the things that people went mm-hmm. through and the things that happened, like, it's just not something you can easily throw away. Mm-hmm. But I just think that's just, that was an interesting concept that, um, you know, I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting, like seeing both of those things. The it's same like time. the one that I don't know if this is a myth or not. I don't know enough about it, but there's a story about when the Germans and the British put the, on Christmas day, put everything aside and had a game of football. Yeah, yes. I think it's true, but then there's many stories that I've thought are true and found out that are just bullshit, so don't take my word for it, but that's what it reminded me of. So finally, to bring Ted Lasso into this, um, (laughs) I I just couldn't help, the whole time I was reading the book, I kept thinking about Rebecca's speech and the football owners uh, when Edwin was trying to start that new league. And again, paraphrasing here a little bit, but, you know, I mean, how much more money do any of you really need? Why would you ever consider taking something away from people that means so much to them? This isn't a game. Football isn't just a game. It's one of those amazing things in life that can make you feel shit one moment and then like it's Christmas morning the next. It has the ability to make heroes and villains out of ordinary men. People love this game. My father loved this game. You all used to love this game. I'm sure of it. Just because we own these teams doesn't mean they belong to us. And I don't want to be part of something that could possibly destroy this beautiful game. Because I would hate for all these little kids and grownups out there to ever lose access to that beautiful, passionate part of themselves. That just really struck me because about how how much ugliness is in the sports. Like, I do feel like that's a little bit, um, you know, uh, 
idyllic in a way mm-hmm. what Rebecca's saying, right? Like she's kind of maybe in some ways sugarcoating a couple yeah. things here, but like sports could, and at times is this thing that unites us. It brings yes. us together. And it also doesn't, you know, nothing mm-hmm. is black and white. Nothing is all one or the other. Sports are a political and social institution with all the issues that society struggle with. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of did, was starting to do some research and there was a, uh, um, an associate, not research. I shouldn't say what I did was research. I just looked up a couple of things just to. You're going to get her out from Bex. She's going to give. Me I know. Her. I was doing research. research. It counts. <laughs> I did a Google search. I mean, you're not you're not using it to make life changing decisions. I think it's fine to call it research. <laughs> it was an Associated Press article dated from so right, like we just read this book from the '90s. This is an Associated Press article dated June 6, twenty twenty three highlighting the treatment of black players across Europe, Italy, France, England, Australia, South America, and Northern Africa. And so the man, so this is the, the quote from the article, the manifestation of a deeper societal problem. Racism is a decades old issue in soccer that has been amplified by the reach of social media and a growing willingness for people to call it out. And to think that it was only 11 years ago that Sepp, Sepp Blatter the president of FIFA denied there was any racism in the game, saying abuse should be resolved with a handshake. The black player currently subjected to the most vicious, relentless, and high-profile racist insults is Vicinius Jr., a 22-year-old Brazilian player who plays for Real Madrid, arguably the most successful soccer team in Europe. It was around the neck of an effigy of Vicinius that a rope, the rope was tied and the figure hung from an overpass near Madrid's training ground in the Spanish capital in January. It was Vicinius who, two weeks ago, in perhaps a defining incident for the Spanish game, was reduced to tears during a match after confronting a, fran- a fan who called him a monkey and made monkey gestures to him. It's Vicinius who, in emerging as the leading Black voice in the fight against racism, which continues to stay in the world's most popular sport. I have a purpose in life, he said on Twitter, and if I have to keep suffering so that future generations won't have to go through these types of situations, I'm ready and prepared. It shouldn't Vicinius, have to be, man. That's no. so sad. That is so sad. Vicinius's biggest concern is that Spanish soccer authorities are doing little to stop the abuse, leaning to racism being an accepted part of the game in, a, in the country. That's heartbreaking to, for him to be like, I'm, pre- I'm prepared to suffer for this. It's, well, you shouldn't fucking have to, though, for what? No. Like, and, yeah. and it's kind of interesting, and I, I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a common sort of thread through some of Cooper's book uh, with how much the football teams are sort of there's always one that seems to be associated with like the fascists in some mm-hmm. of these yeah. countries, right? Yeah. And you know if you look at all the marketing that sports teams do, it's all about sort of this unthinking kind of loyalty, right? Mm-hmm. We are behind this group no matter what, and so you can sort of see how there's this ingrained mentality that could lead people to could not lead people to be attractive to people who tend to have that us and them sort of othering. They're already, they're already like that. So it's right. They're they're already like that. So they're drawn to sports. And so, you know, I mean, cause racism is this unthinking in group thing. Right. And I do not mean to diminish the impact of it. um, More the intellect of the people who are racist Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or, or, or the character certainly of the people who are racist. But but yeah, there's I think something about sports that lends itself so well to, you know, if you're gonna be a a supporter, do or die, you know, it's it's like the people who do the America love it or leave it thing. You know, you're not allowed to think about it, you just have to support it. And mm-hmm. people yeah. do that with ethnic groups as much as with sports teams. Yeah. Um, 
I did. I wanted to point out this is a little bit off off racism. I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if it's still the case, but they talked about those old firm games in Glasgow and how they were banning they people did, from having it? Union Jacks. Right? Yeah, because there's there's the thing with the old firm with Celtic and Rangers is the um, the battle between them isn't really just about football; it's a religion, and the, the Rangers fans tend to be more for Britain, and um, you know. But but in the in the same way, I mean, the way that certain groups of people have used American flags here in the U.S. as an implicit threat. Yes. And when I see a Union Jack, I'm kind of side-eyeing. I'm like, are you one of these people that are like, oh, I'm, you know, I've got Union Jack, especially when you see one in Scotland, right? It's very, it's usually mm-hmm. a Rangers fan. <laughs> Right. And whereas, you know, growing up, I mean, certainly there's a lot of American exceptionalism that's not new, but the American flag was never, for me personally, a a threat Mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, now driving around rural Oregon, if I see a pickup truck that has taken it upon themselves to get a giant flag and fly it in the bed of their truck, it is relatively safe to make certain assumptions about the occupants and their friendliness to people who are not like them. At the very least, I'm going to take it upon myself to make that assumption for my own safety. Yes, right? well, yes, that's that's uh, a good way to say it. Also, some of the things that you're talking about, Andrea, I think we can, although a different side of a similar coin, I guess. I don't know how to phrase that, but like if we look at issues of sexism uh, mm-hmm. in sports as well, I just did an episode on my other podcast, Big Reputations, about the history of women's soccer. And the uh, just everything that people have gone through and, and the racial and sex mm-hmm. sexism stuff like that intersects quite a bit in mm-hmm. in women's sports. Oh, yeah. So I'd be kind of curious to see how that might play out if we looked at it through the lens of, of women's sports, because mm-hmm. there is a lot yeah. of political it's, stuff, I, a lot of religious stuff, all of that comes yeah. into play there as well. There's a relatively recent interview I saw with Cooper where he was talking about, uh, I think he was, it was a podcast style show, probably. I don't remember which one it was, but he was just getting sort of peppered with questions. And he talked about how a team who, a, a men's team who finally hires a woman's a woman as a coach is going to get a hell of a deal because there's so much discrimination against women. There are all these amazingly talented women who could coach who are just not getting hired. Yeah. And so they, they're going to even at a discount, make more money than they could anywhere else. And that team is going to end up with, you know, someone who can really coach because and the, they'll probably you know, not pay her as much. So they'll save well, money too. Well, yeah, and that sorry. was, no, that was kind of the upshot of what he was saying, but it, it's, you know, from a financial point of view, it's ridiculous that we leave it with sexism, with racism, with all sorts of discrimination, so much of the talent pool out of who is getting hired. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just to bring it back then to the book, in like a similar quote, he had in 1974, Zaire became the first Black African team to qualify. The Zairean performance is the worst of any African team at the World Cup, and the European press loved it. Jur- journalists spread stories that the players had taken monkeys to eat, you know, and that like they had the ta- tactical grasp of savages and all this kind of thing, right? And that was 1974, but like still talking about monkeys and you know what I mean? Like an article from 1974, same thing, you know? And then, you know, and it was all over. Like there was a lot of the, um, tw- in 2021, there was an NPR story, I think, Jason Sudeikis was very vocal about the, you know, the racial backlash that the black players on England's national team faced 
after the Euro 2020 championship loss, you know, and those players had to endure Nazi salutes directed at them and just all kinds of hate that was disgusting. And so, yeah. And so we saw some of this fan shouting hate and stuff in the Collins storyline in Ted Lasso. And I think we can all imagine that Sam probably would have had his his fair share of that. And I think the key for Sam was he played for a team that wasn't going to put up with that and they would defend him. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, just imagining even Colin being able to kiss his guy at the end. You know, like what kind of abuse would have been directed at him from that. And like, I almost kind of a wish or imagine, like, I wish Ted had tackled that, you know, like they did such a good job of like taking these difficult things, maybe putting a slight, I don't know what to call it, but like they tackled some very important subjects in Ted Lasso, as we know, Mm -hmm. right? I wish they would have maybe did a little bit more on this with Sam Right, like I think even- the, the episode that I'm discussing covers a little bit, but it's less on the racism and more on the because he was speaking out, you know. Mm-hmm. But it, he does bring, you know, I'll get into it in my section anyway. But yeah, I see what you mean if it had been expanded. I suppose as well, sometimes for like black actors, it's just nice not to have to fucking think about that shit when you're dealing with yes. it in your daily life as well. I know, you know? so yeah, right. I, I get it, and I, you know, I see where you're coming from as well, though. Like, it would have been not necessarily that we had to show Sam dealing with it, Mm -hmm. but, like, having Ted school the reporters in the way that he always did so Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Like, they're bullshit. But then you don't want the white savior thing either. Oh, I know, yeah. You know, it's like, and I'm not, like, just wanting to pick at everything you're saying at all. You're right, I know. You know, it's like... It's not easy. It's not black and white. Look at you with the puns. So, you know, um, unfortunately, our current political climate is encouraging of all of this behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, as Simon illustrated again and again in his book, like saying art imitates life, sports imitates life. Sport is a reflection of our people. And Rebecca's speech about this sport belonging to the people is true. And it's the people who will have to fix it. And it's and when I say the people, I mean everyone from the owners, the regulating bodies, the staff, players, fans. Um, we all need to stand up when we see racism. Just don't let those fuckers in the stadium anymore. Like it, when it comes to the three black players who I will be discussing a, a little bit in my section, you have video cameras on all the fucking stadium now. You can see who was taking part in that shit. Get them banned for life. Yeah. And keep we doing it. it. We normalize it and mm-hmm. forgive it. And that's why it's brushed aside and not yeah. really an issue. It's de- we're desensitized to it. And as yeah. white people, you know. Yeah. But, well, yeah, but but uh, you're right. I mean, soccer means so much to people that there needs to be consequences that matter. Yeah. Part of part of why things are so bad in this country is not because there are more racists. I mean, obviously, it would be better if there were fewer racists, but mm-hmm. it's because it's more socially acceptable for people to openly and publicly espouse racist yes. ideas. Yeah, there are racists who can function and not do a lot of damage if they shut mm-hmm. up and aren't in positions of power. Yeah. And I'm not going to minimize that it's, you know, it's not okay that they're racist, but there are worse ways to be racist. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's going to take all of us. And uh, the thing that upsets me most about this is we have so much still to fix before we can even be able to begin to tackle sexism in sports and how the women's leagues are treated and respected or not respected. Mm-hmm. Um, we shouldn't ignore the strides that have been made for women athletes But speaking to everyone needing to support, like one thing I credit America for is that the famous male basketball players, they all own 
own and coach the women's teams. So they are supporting, actively supporting, like actively sitting in the stands, supporting the women's mm-hmm. basketball team. And it's still not as big. The women's basketball here is not as big as the men's, but they are all there. Yeah. And I think that the men in, so- in soccer, football, football, need to do the same thing. The male the male players should feel that responsibility to support the women. And mm-hmm. I was very happy to see some of the Spanish men supporting Jenny Hermoso. Yes. Yeah, um, with everything she, you know, like there was, uh, there was only a couple though, but even like the male coaches and mm-hmm. there were a lot of people that spoke out. And like the fact that the English coach, even like the, the, the team, the team they beat their coach spoke up and she had won an award and she's like, I dedicate this to that struggle. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we need for racism. Yeah. They, everyone needs to stand together. And like, there's like, uh, so one of, you know, the, the Bulgarian incident that I mentioned when they were giving the Nazi salute, the Bulgarian captain went over to them and was like, you guys need to stop. And I think mm-hmm. they did. Those fans did end up leaving but the captain on the Bulgarian team, his fans, he was like, you got, you know, he walked over and yeah. did that. And like, that's what we need, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's the only way we're going to fix this. Zero and- tolerance. Zero tolerance is the only from everybody, way. Mm-hmm. From everybody. And, and there's, so, yeah, there's just so much more work there needed. So. Hi, Greyhounds. A small break in proceedings to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club and Instagram at Coach Beards Book Club. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. Right, so it's me next. And I am going to talk about the essay, FC Barcelona and the Scottish question. And then I'm going to loosely, I'm going to loosely connect it to the episode the strings that bind us and we'll just see how it goes together (laughs) i I like the loosely connect with respect to the strings that bind us that's a a very i just had to point out unintentional pun i should have done it deliberately (laughs) fc barcelona's new camp stadium which i've been to by the way fucking enormous like huge i'm 411 so it's even bigger um it's situated in catalonia which is an autonomous community located in spain Now, Catalonia has a separate language from Spain. They speak Catalan and they have their own self-governing privileges, similar to Scotland and Britain. The Catalans feel Catalan first and Spanish second. Now, this is a quote. Club directors at Rangers and Celtic at Barcelona always prefer to say that their club is just a club. Nor do players tend to worry about their employer's political status. But what players and directors think is besides the point, because the club is what it means to the fans. As far as I understand it now, FC Barcelona's sort of tagline, like a movie would have, I don't know, is not it's not just a club sort of thing. You know, like it means a lot to the, the Catalans. And Barca is the main source of Catalan pride. Barca being FC Barcelona is what it's called over there, obviously. In the past, they've used football as a way to express their political opinions because they weren't able to speak freely. You couldn't shout in the streets, Franco, you murderer, but you could go and shout at Real Madrid players. And that was how they would get their political aggression out. So Cooper says that some say there is no such thing as a Catalan working class. The lower classes in Barcelona are migrants from the rest of Spain. And Cooper says that the migrants arrived in the 60s and they had to make a choice whether to support Barca or Espanyol. 
Now, yes, when I read this at first, I was like, well, one's a national team and one's it's Espanol isn't the national team. It's just a team that came to Barcelona and was like, we're going to call ourselves Spanish because your team was started by the Swiss. So it's a bit of a dig. Rude. <laughs> bit rude. But that's what they did. And then so you have this rival team, Spanish, and then you have Barca. And Cooper sort of pointed out that a victory for a certain team can help these political parties who share the team's ideologies. I think he gave Liverpool being a left-wing town as an example, helping the Labour Party if they were to win, you know, the full thing. So it's it's a sort of similar thing here. The Barca winning gives Catalonia a boost, but when they're not as good as it, it tarnishes the symbol of a nation. So it's not just a football team at all there. You know, it's like it's intrinsically tied to politics. You just couldn't unstitch it if you if you tried. Winning the European Cup would help the proposal that Spain become a federal state with two capitals, Cooper says as well. But what, what really interested me was the part where it said many migrants would either support, you know, Espanol because they still felt Spanish, or they would come in and support Catalonia because they wanted to fit in to the area. And it's like, it was really interesting, the sort of dynamics of that. And that sort of reminded me of the migrant episode that we had in Ted Lasso in season three. I just love listening to you talk about the Spanish teams because I lived there for a while. And although I did not live in Barcelona, I visited a few times and you can definitely take note of the uh, political differences there. And you know, obviously I was there long after Franco was dead, but <laughs> since I wasn't even born when <laughs> when he died, <laughs> the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I recall learning about in my general Spanish history courses mm-hmm. that hearing you apply it through the lens of football, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, yeah. like, why don't we teach more history through the lens of football? Anyway. Well, through the lens of anybody's interests, it's like what I was saying earlier about getting more into Shakespeare because I enjoy, enjoyed a TV show about Shakespeare. You know, sometimes, and I certainly with me with, with the ADHD, is I often need a pathway into things. You know, I often, you often have to get me interested in some other way for me to get to the point. So I see what you, yeah, that would yeah. be like really good to teach that way. You know. One thing I was going to say was that me. It's actually that was I almost went down that angle. Did you? Um, which I'm glad I didn't, but like, we, you know, like the, um, in America and American football, the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys are America's team. They're America's mm. team, you know? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeehaw. Yeah. Yeehaw. <laughs> Texas is always talking about seceding from, you know, the rest of us, which, but, I, but like, it's, it's actually really funny again, how all this stuff brings us together and the politics and all of it that Texas here, but then yes, Madrid and Barcelona. Yeah. Wanting to, right. They want to, they want to separate Spain, Mm -hmm. make it two countries, you know? So yeah. Yeah, totally. It did because of the migrant thing, like the migrant thing, that sounds awful because of the situation where it was showing you the choice the migrants would make between football teams as to how they fitted into that society. Um, it really made me think of the episode, The Strings That Bind Us. And I'm going to focus mainly on Sam's story in this episode, but there is a bit of total football that really, really applies here. So I'll bring it back round to total football by the end. And I feel like what we've done so far, Marita, Andrea and me, is total football because we're just throwing it off to each other. We're just It's worked really well. It's fitting in. 
Well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah. So Sam arrives at his restaurant to ask Farida if there would be a table on Friday for a special guest. And he hears Simi um, swearing in the kitchen. She's she's pissed off. And he goes to investigate and Simi's reading the newspaper. Simi explains to Sam that the Home Secretary, Brenda Bardot, is refusing to let a boat full of refugees enter Britain. The boat is full of families with children, yet Brenda Bardot confidently exclaims that Britain is closed. While Simi has a similar attitude to the situation as I would, <laughs> Sam is more measured and says that he's going to speak his thoughts to this clearly misguided woman, which is a really nice way to put it. Sam tweets in support of the refugees. But Brenda comes back with her own subtweet saying football players should shut up and dribble. Then tweeting directly about Sam, she calls him a mediocre player on a mediocre team, which quite frankly is an ironic thing for a fucking Tory to say. The shut up and dribble is, is where I want a wee bit of conversation because that not only applies to footballers in Britain, but also that was a, a thing that was said to Colin Kaepernick, right? When he was taking the knee and he was getting a lot of abuse for that was told to shut up and dribble and I think that that was really quite a good way to give a bit of context to the Brits and the Americans. Well I think shut up and play um, yes has been applied to uh, American athletes in all sorts of sports who espouse particularly left-leaning opinions but also musicians um, oh, yeah. uh, you know and Jason actors. Isbell in country music right and actors right but Jason yeah. Isbell in country music country music if you look at the history of country music, it's so populist in sort of supporting unions, right? And like, it's for the little people. And it's sort of moved into this sort of bro country where it's just a lot. There is certainly a, a branch of country music that's basically just flag waving and beer drinking at this point. Yeah. And Isbel, he's like one of my favorite people on Twitter because he will just sit there. Um, he's an excellent musician uh, and a lot of people love his music and then find him on Twitter and become very angry because he does not shut up and play. Yeah, <laughs> He is yeah. very clear that he has no intention of shutting up and playing. But here's um, the thing, like these sports players or musicians, actors, whoever, the fact of the matter is they do have influence and like I don't follow a ton of American football. I hadn't heard of him before the whole situation, but when Kaepernick took the knee, like mm -hmm. everyone knew of that. And so when you then pull that into a show and you have Sam's being told like, shut up and dribble, it calls back to that. And it, it helps contextualize these situations for people who might consider themselves outsiders. Like, I don't know the inner workings of British politics and this and that. But hearing that line, I can go like, oh, okay, I know what side is what. I know where I stand in relation to mm -hmm. this conversation and so on. Yeah, that just, I thought it was quite a good way to sort of pull it all together. It's also what Marcus Rashford, do you all know who Marcus Rashford is? You do, because we've talked about his, his children's books before. He mm -hmm. experienced during the pandemic because he was advocating for because all the kids were at home, they were they weren't receiving the lunches that they would receive for free. So he was advocating for like getting those resources to the kids that need it, and he took so much abuse, not just from like people, but from like MPs, like actual members of parliament, like giving this mediocre player and just shut up and play and all this crap. I thought that was quite interesting. Shut up and feed the and children. Yeah, I mean, imagine like making let's not give kids food like the hill to die on that's, that's the fucking thing right 
Right. How are all the stances to dig in. uh, And I'll tell you, like, I'll get into more about Marcus Rashford later, but he changed things. He changed things. So if he had have shut up and dribbled, that situation might have been very different, right? From football. So Sam responds to Suella Braverman. Oh, sorry. I mean, Pretty Patel. No, I mean, Brenda Bardo. For anybody who doesn't know, that Suella Braverman, who is our current Home Secretary, and Pretty Patel, who was our past Home Secretary, have both been probably more evil than Brenda Bardo has been in relation to helping people in crisis. But Sam responds to Brenda and calls her a world-class bigot, which is still nicer than what I would have said, but hey-ho. I watched this episode again to do this piece, obviously, and I must have seen this episode six to eight times, maybe more, because I start to stop counting. And I think people will judge me if I tell the truth on how many times I've watched it. But that episode still gets me every single time. I still burst into tears when he walks in and he sees, because he kills it. He just like, oh, he absolutely kills it. And and it's so upsetting to see him just drop the box and just be absolutely destroyed. But he returns to a horribly vandalised restaurant. It's been vandalised by racists. And on the door, the glass has been smashed, the mirrors have been smashed, the neon sign is hanging in bits, and on the wall it says shut up and dribble and sort of spray paint. Ah, I just even talking about that bit, it's just horrible. But Sam returns to Richmond for training and he's he's clearly worked up. He snaps in the changing room. He says that people love him for playing football until he misses a penalty or he fucks up or he fights back, and then they want to ship him back to in quotes where he came from. In this part, I see a reference to Marcus Rashford, to Jason Sancho and to Bukayo Saka, who, when they missed their penalties, uh, as Andrea mentioned earlier, during the Euro 2020 final, received just horrendous abuse. But not only that, they were treated as then just being black rather than being English. The minute they missed those penalties, they weren't English anymore. They were black. Right. So there's this conditional thing of their, their Englishness. It's just it's, it's so stupid. Like, I just don't know how you can be so narrow-minded. But obviously that they can. But to me, it just says that even if they'd have scored the penalty, these people were still racist. They just weren't showing it, you know? They're still there. They were still silent in the crowd. Um, And that's what Sam is saying. You know, you're on the edge because you're fine until you fuck up. And everybody fucks up. Every single person on this earth fucks up. These penalty misses, there are 50-50 chance. I don't know much about football, but I would say there's, you know, there's obviously a skill to it, but most of it's luck, right? Like a penalty, like which way the goalie goes, which way you decide to go. I don't know. It just seems really... I'm going to jump in yeah, because like that, like that, that just hit a nerve for me because Messi was criticized for years because and he, like, you know, he was supposedly this great player and he would get to the World Cup and like he missed several penalties. Yeah. No one ever attacked him for not being right. Yeah. It was just like, oh, Messi's never gonna, you know, he's never gonna, you know, take over Maradona because he can't do this, you know, mm-hmm. like until he has a World Cup, this, you know, all this kind of stuff that they always say, right? But they just criticized Messi as a player. A footballer. Yes. A, fo- a footballer, not mm-hmm. at right. Like no one t- Which you know, is no fine. You know that like critics right, and such critics and art books, they exist. But like you say, he was criticised because he was a football player, not because he was a black person or a black man. Do you know? Like it just... Yeah. And then, so as you'd mentioned, 
Jason himself had worn the three players' names on his T-shirt to one of the award shows. I'm really sorry. I don't keep up with the award shows. I don't know which one it was. But he wore that as a, as a sort of support. Or, or the premiere, yeah. Was, it, it, was the premiere? it the premiere? Right, okay. Season and then two, I real so. fucked that up. Because <laughs> I thought it was like the Emmys or something. But in fact, I think he just went to them in hoodies. So, yeah, I think it you're was, right. It, it was via Zoom, right? He was at home. Yeah, that's fair. And I, that was no judgment. I would go everywhere in a hoodie if I could get away with it. Yeah, so that's what I, I really picked up from that the most was like, you you can't do anything. You can't, you're on tender hooks because you can't do anything wrong. And then you're just black and, and not English anymore. Ola, Sam's dad, shows up and comforts his son in the most beautiful way. And I just want to mention the quotes that I appreciate most from Ola are, anger will only weaken you and fight forward, not back. Now, the fight forward, not back, which really makes me think of Marcus Rashford, who dealt with the abuse from the Tory parliament members for advocating for children. But he just kept going. He didn't fight back with them. He just showed everybody who he was. He just kept doing what he was doing, showed everybody who he was, continued to help all these kids. And he gave a lot of people so much hope. And like I mentioned earlier, changed the outcome of that entire situation. Kids ate because of a footballer. Right. I wanted to pause after that because think about it. Right. Kids ate lunches during a global pandemic of such the like we've never seen in our lifetimes because of a football player. That's really interesting to me. So Sam takes his dad to Ola's where he finds the whole team banding together to repair the restaurant. That's so sweet. And Jamie says they just asked themselves, what does this situation need? Which comes over from the total football training and mm. um, what does the situation need and it turned out to be them and Bumbercatch fixes the neon sign and he's goggles which is amazing I need a spin-off of Bumbercatch just like with goggles I don't know why you, you know as a chemistry professor I'm always glad to see eye protection <laughs> yeah especially when that eye protection is like stylish as hell you know yeah. love it um, but yeah, he's. He, I don't know. I just want to see him in his own movie. Like as as a, it, it reminded me of like the Warcraft um, dwarven tinkers. You know, like not because he's short or anything, not like in in stature, but just the way he was with these little goggles and these tools and stuff and his confidence about fixing. it. loved it. Anyway, that's not the point at all. But then Ola sees that the restaurant's been named after him, and we pull out of this horrible situation with heartwarming love, basically that everybody's showing each other. And they keep the mirrors smashed to highlight how everything doesn't have to be perfect, which I actually really enjoyed that because also I think it, it serves as a reminder to, I think that the mirrors are a good reminder to like um, people not used to that cuisine, like white people coming in to see what Sam had to go through to get to that point. And he shouldn't have had to go through that to get to that point. But I, I think the mirrors being left broken was was perfect. So Johan Cruyff, Jan, Jan Maas, let me know if I did that well. Took total football to Barcelona. So that's the connect, sort of connection with my Barcelona piece. Not really, there is obviously more, but yeah, he took total football to Barcelona and it's the whole, everybody works fluidly as a team. But one of the tasks that Ted gives the team is to swap positions with another player because being in each other's shoes allows you to develop empathy for that person, right? And he said, the right idea is sitting behind a couple of wrong ones. And I think that really applies to politics as well right like not just politics but every situation 
it's easy just to say the words, put yourself in their shoes, but no, really think about it. Really think about it. What would you do for your family? What would you do if you were struggling? And what would you do if you had to leave your country? What would be your options? What would you like to see people treat you like? What would you not like to see people? Think about it. Because this is what these people are having to go through. So to finish, it's Trent's notes on total football, which is the one, two, three. We don't know what the four is. And the one was conditioning. And two is versatility. And three is awareness. So total football in relation to immigration politics for me would be conditioning. Learn about other cultures and any struggles that they face and put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself also in the shoes of refugees. How would you react? What would you do? Versatility. Don't be so fucking rigid that everyone coming to Britain or America has to align with your style of dress, your religion, your, you know, everything that you do doesn't have to be what other people do. Celebrate different, different people, ask questions and learn. And awareness. Once you achieve the awareness, it would be much harder to be a world-class bigot because you have achieved empathy. And I think it's quite easy when you're thinking about these people in boats off the coast of Britain, you're not thinking about them as people. You're dehumanising them because you're seeing them as a problem for you. They are people. Think about it, you know. I just can't see how you can have that view of, well, fuck off, Britain's closed. It's it's really upsetting. I was reading about this in a um, one of my books about feminism that I've been listening to about how basically it's like you attribute you attribute a, a person to being like an animal or just yeah, to being less than a person. Right. Yeah. Like, like that, like that famous thing here in America about the black people were, what was it? The three fourths, they were three fourths of a person. Three or was he less? Yeah. yeah. Three fifths yeah. of a person. So they weren't even like, yeah. if, if you can't imagine someone as a human being with feelings. It's easier to be a world-class bigot. To be a world class yeah. That's no excuse though. I'm not saying that. I'm not excusing these people with it because no. being unempathetic is a choice. Like yeah. you can you only have to educate yourself, is what I mean. That you know, obviously I'm not yeah, to look about at another it. human being and being like, you're not really a person. Like mm-hmm. I you're not equal to me as a human being. Yeah. Takes yeah. It's an easier choice for some people than others. And so interestingly, so I talked a little bit about um, Cooper's talk at the Oxford Union, but something he brought up in terms of empathy is for people who are wealthy and of a certain class. And in, in, in his case, he's talking about public school educated Tories even if the policies that they are putting forward go horrifically awry, right? Brexit blows up, they're going to be fine. Yeah. Right. They're going to come out of it. Okay. They don't need to think about what it must be like because it will never happen Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. So, so a lack of empathy is, you know, for some people completely optional. I mean, if you're living, you know, in middle to lower classes in a city, it becomes harder because you're actually surrounded by and part of a community with people who are different than you. And you can still choose not to have empathy and Lord knows people do. And there are still plenty of bigots and racists around, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's a more difficult and deliberate choice to make because you have to actively ignore your experiences with, with people you actually interact with. Absolutely. That's true. Uh, So number four didn't really come to anything. And we think that's because that was supposed to be a, a sort of allegory for season four. But if we were going to have a number four for total football in relation to immigration politics, I would say that patience is key because we could all benefit from being a little bit more patient with each other, which would be a lot easier if we understand each other. And um, lastly, fuck the Tories and fuck the Republicans. Thanks for listening. Greyhounds, 
If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd be delighted if you could give us a review and follow or subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. Right, so Bex, you're going to take us to the finish line. That's not a football pun, but never mind. No, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to just go (laughs) with it. So I love how y'all were talking about sort of the global political aspects of this book, but also the the sports politics that we have. And so I guess if I'm going to be talking about the politics of something, it would be the politics of fandom in this case. And I'm going to take it through this lens of not everything is for everyone and that's okay. This does not apply to things like racism. This does not apply to things like sexism. And I want to make that extremely clear here. Bigotry is different than difference of opinions. Yeah. So I'm going to start out by confessing that I did not finish this book. And it's the first book that we've read for book club that I didn't get through. That's an achievement. Thank you. (laughs) Honestly, it wasn't the book itself. It it really wasn't. I was interested in it, right? I thought that some of the references were a bit dated, but the topic was really fascinating to me. And I did like the sort of vignette style travelogue of it, right? Like we're going from one place to the next. My problem was the type of access that I personally had to this book. So this summer I was saving all the money and not buying things, which meant everything I got was through the library. For every book that we've read so far, I've either read the print copy or listened to the audiobook. But the only copy of Soccer Against the Enemy, because that's the version I had, <laughs> <laughs> the only version I could get a hold of without buying it was an ebook version. And I don't really have anything great to read ebooks on. Like my phone no. is an SE for people who don't know in the iPhone world, that's like the equivalent of an apple like an iphone 5 it's like Mm -hmm. it's more technologically advanced but size wise it's really tiny reading on your iphone regardless of the size would be Mm. a nightmare yeah it's just i can't do it and Mm -hmm. then reading on my laptop is just i like to curl up with a book Mm -hmm. or i like to listen to something while i'm multitasking and that doesn't work really well with the laptop for me i tried it's a shame you can't turn the laptop on its side like a book that would I mean, good. I kind of did that, but I, yeah. I do that. Even yeah. then, if I like <laughs> fall asleep on it, I was afraid it would like fall right, out of my yeah. bed. So that wouldn't work, you know. But the the fact is, like, I just realized that ebooks are not really for me, and none of y'all have shamed me for this, you Whoa. know. Like, <laughs> you know, and you say that, but there are people out there who will. They're like, oh, you know, listening to audiobooks doesn't count. Or ebooks aren't real books, or you know, fill in the blank. (laughs) Just going to say that. Just just going to go back to what I said at the last one is have a bit of empathy for each other. Not everybody is in the same situation as you. So if somebody wants to, we've always said it here: engage with the text however suits you. Exactly. And there will never be judgment for how you wish to do that. And so that's what I did, right? And like I said, I don't think this was a bad book. It was very well written. It was extremely relevant when it was written. And as Andrea mentioned, it's still very relevant, unfortunately, in some aspects today. Uh, You know, a lot of people like it. It's about the most popular sport in the world. It's it was a me thing. And that's okay. So if I look at the sport this way, you know, soccer is well loved by many, but not by all. 
And even within the world of the sport, there are people who care about it to varying degrees. So some are casual fans, some are intensely for a particular team or a specific player. Some are really into like the tactics of the game and the logistics of this and that. You know, you get the idea, right? So, but even within that, there are subsections. People who like one particular team might like it for a different reason than someone else, or they may have a different favorite player. Some might like to see the games in person, others watch them on TV, or maybe even listen to them on the radio, right? And some want to delve into the politics of the sport globally, like Cooper does here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, what I'm getting at is that there are many different ways to be a fan of soccer, just like there are many ways of being a fan of books. Oh, I love that, Bix. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to me because I think, you know, people talk about sports as a religion sometimes, and I think fandom can come across as a religion, and there yep. are varying fact, uh, factions of this, and those factions can get along or not get along. They can have some overlapping ideas and some not. So I want to connect this fandom bit to Ted Lasso, like our love of sports, our love of books, our love of fandom. Just like a sports fandom, in our own Ted Lasso fandoms, we all like different aspects of the show. We all have different favorite characters, Sam. We all wanted <laughs> different things out of the finale. <laughs> and we all prefer different episodes, right? Some fans actually watch Ted Lasso casually. I'm not sure how, but they do it. You know, <laughs> but that's, that's again a me thing, right? Others do in-depth analyses of the episodes. Some write fanfic, create fan art and th similar things. And some, you know, I don't know, some people make podcasts that talk about the books that appeared in the show. <laughs> Who would do that? What nerd? <laughs> Never <Absolute> met them. <laughs> but no matter how we engage in fandom, no matter how we engage in sports, no matter how we engage with books, right? Unless we're being mean or nasty to other fans, we're doing it right. Yeah. Right? There's no wrong way to be a fandom unless you're jumping into that big tree realm, mm -hmm. which, which... Or bullying, because that can be a thing as well, right? Just general bullying, not... Like oh, bullying. Yeah, yeah. Bullying, yeah. I was like, billion? A billion? Oh, that's the first time you've never been able to understand me. We've been <laughs> apart too long. It's true. It's true. <laughs> or, or trying to quantify your love. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a, a real better fan. fan. Number one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fake the, fans the, 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 and yes. big name fans and like all of that. That's crossing a line for me. Shitty behavior. So what I wanted to do is pull out a few examples that I think are really these moments in Ted Lasso fandom where like a religion, like a sports player or sports fan like a, a book lover there are different ways for us to appreciate or not these certain moments and even if we don't see it in the same light that's okay so i'm going to start with an episode i'm going to talk about beard after hours <laughs> a glorious wonderful episode mm -hmm. agreed agreed right but probably the most controversial episode of the entire series yeah it's like the cilantro of Ted Lasso. Well, I think maybe until the, the series finale. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, it, it does. To me, it's like the cilantro of Ted coriander. Lasso. Coriander. That's it's coriander. Yeah. Oh, yes. Just, for you on the yeah. other side of the pond. And it tastes like shower gel. Sorry. Carry on. 
I can't. <laughs> it, it tastes <laughs> like God loves us and wants us to be happy. Makaya. Exactly. Cilantro is wonderful. Let's just three against it. one. It's three to one. Three against one. <laughs> anyway, no, but the problem is like, or not the problem, but like the 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 truth is like, you either love it or you hate it, right? Yeah. You love Ted Lasso or you'll never watch it again, whether it was the Beard After Hours or maybe the finale, right? In this case, I'm thinking of that episode. There are people who skip that episode on their rewatches, yeah. right? I mean, as we've declared many times on this podcast and as Marita just reinforced for us, we're all on team love it. Yeah, over every here at single the one of us. <laughs> uh, but it's okay that there are others who are not, right? They have yeah. their reasons. What's not okay is telling people that they're wrong for liking it or not liking it. We can have conversations sharing our perspectives, our side of things. This is why I like it. Why don't you like it? Understanding and empathy, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, someone's not less of a fan because no. they don't like it. And someone's not a better fan because they get it as an episode. Yeah. but I think it's weird behavior to consider yourself a better than anyone in any situation. But fandom, it happens a lot. But what was like good about the Ted Lasso community is people were late to Ted Lasso and people weren't arseholes about it but I have been late to fandoms and they're like oh you know they're really like snarky about it so no but as fandoms grow and yes. as they've been established over a certain amount of time things can shift That's and true. again this goes back to my religion parallel like I come from the supernatural fandom that's <laughs> a show with 15 seasons and like if you're talking about denominations of fandom factions there's so many and ted lasso being limited to three seasons and kind of a short run is not as extremely varied but there are some big differences and uh, that's going to be my next example is one of those particular differences hmm ted becca yeah shipping is always controversial right mm -hmm. especially if you're shipping characters who aren't already canonically together you know, as I said, as a member of the Supernatural fandom, I know, right? People within Ted Lasso, some people were very attached to the idea of Ted Becca and were disappointed when it didn't happen. Others were bummed but decided to keep things alive with like reading and writing fan fiction. You know, they they can engage with their ship how they want to. Some didn't see the pairing as romantic and either were surprised at the reaction to the fact that it didn't happen or celebrating the, the platonic friendship between a man and a woman. Some people just watched the show without considering subtext in this way, so it never even crossed their minds. Like, it's, wait, there was nothing ever explicit about this, so why, right, Why? where is this coming from? But no one of those fans is less of a fan than the others. Again... Unless they start telling people that their way of seeing things is wrong. No one's an idiot for seeing it or not seeing it. No one's a bad fan for wanting it or not wanting it. Everyone is just being a fan in the best way that works for them. Yeah. Until you start to try and impose that on other people. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to move over to the other Becca ship. Sam Becca. A lot of people had a problem with this one, right? And this happened early on. It was just in season two. It wasn't like it, there was build up to this. But a lot of people had an issue for whatever reason. You know, for some, maybe it was the age difference or that she was his boss. 
But either way, there were people who didn't like the ship uh, and others like me who loved it. And others like me who were indifferent. Exactly. People have their reasons for thinking that these factors, right, the age difference, the boss thing, they have their reasons for thinking that they mattered or they didn't. And they should all be welcome to hold those ideas. The problem comes when you trash someone for thinking it's cute by saying that they're promoting unethical behaviors or saying that people who don't like it are just prudes who only believe in one type of relationship. Right. And these are things I heard. I mean, mm -hmm. they're extremes, but I, I heard these things or saw them out in the fandom world. But it's fiction. People can like it or not, and both are valid. It might be a little bit different in the real world, and that's the last bit I'm going to talk about. I want to kind of go back to this idea of, of Rebecca being Sam's boss, but also mm -hmm. being Ted's boss. Yeah, that's true. I, that's true. I heard people say that Sam and Rebecca together was not okay because she was in a position of power over him. And I heard people say that Ted and Rebecca together was okay, even though she was in a position of power over him. Now, I'm not saying that those were the same people. Yeah, They could have been. My guess is some were and some weren't. But again, it's fiction. We don't all have to be on the same page about it. And in the real world, like, mm, we're looking at you, Luis Rubiales. It's not okay. Yeah. And it's doubly... It's doubly not okay if the person with less power openly states that they did not consent. We support you, Jenny Hermoso. Yeah, and it's a lot worse when somebody puts words in their mouth after it as well. So it's exactly. But here we're talking about a fictional story. And in this fictional story, it's written in a way that makes it clear that in whatever circumstance, it would be consensual, right? And it should be okay to enjoy it. No one is wrong or gross for thinking it's cute and could work in either case, nor are people wrong for being icked out by it, right? People have their own circumstances that they're coming to the table with, and we don't know what happened in their life that makes them go, you know what, this is straight up a red flag no matter what angle we look at it. Yeah. And some are just like, you know what, I had a meet cute with my partner this way or something, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Anyway. Let's keep the con conflict in the show. <laughs> conflict is for the story, not for the fandom. Right. right. And look, I'm not saying we should all agree or that we should just like shut up and never have a conversation about oh, it. Totally. That's what we we're can here debate. Doing. Yeah, that's what we're doing right now. But when it turns to name calling and being nasty mm. to someone, that's where I draw the line. Like the thing that I found most interesting, right? Well, like talking about the fact that like we're all watching a show and people see different things. I honestly saw the ending, not as an ending, but as a, this is where we're at right now and things can go like for everybody, right? Like all of the various relationships that people were invested in. And Even, the character growth as well. Like the, yeah, the, the character know. growth. Like I just felt like, I felt like it was an open ending to maybe another, right? Like who knows? I'd yeah. we'll get another show, some kind of spinoff, something. And like this story isn't over. Right. Like at some point, Ted's, you know, I just forgot his son's name. Henry. Um, Henry, Henry yeah. is going to go away to college and then Ted's going to have another life. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just like there's to me, to me, it was written so clearly to me, open ended. Yeah. 
And it's just interesting to me that I, I have not found very many people that see that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think people are just so used to linear storylines, you know, and a lot of the other sitcoms don't get into such serious things. They do, but they do it in a different way. Like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yeah, did cover political things, but they covered it in a very different way from Ted Lasso. They were a 22-minute episode. Ted Lasso's a 40-minute, well, ended up well, being a 40-minute episode. Anywhere from 22 to yeah. an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. well, I wonder if we got a season four, the episodes would just be like full-on movies. But but yeah, that that's what I mean. Like, it it was different. You know, there was a realism to it and it, that there hasn't been in other sitcoms. And so if I want to think about this in terms of the book that we read or that I didn't finish reading, you know, there was a lot of stuff that he mentioned that he brought up that were like, some people look at it this way, some people look at it this other way. And some of these things are truly problematic and other things are really just a difference of opinion. And yeah. that's okay, too. So, well, and there's also some cases in the book that he brings up where decisions made by management about things such as the name of the club would just alienate huge amounts of people in a way that's mm-hmm. disproportionate to the, because they symbolize something else for people. So it ends up being disproportionate to the actual act in a way that the people making the change did not predict. Yeah, Like the changing that the name of that team in Croatia, and I don't have the book in front of me. So it ended up being a, a political act in a way that maybe they hadn't fully intended the response that they got Mm -hmm. yeah and and that's one thing i do think the writers of this show were aware of without pandering Mm -hmm. yeah and i gotta have respect for that that was amazing bex i really enjoyed it and i thought it was a fantastic way for you to make what you did out of not really having the opportunity to enjoy the book as much so i commend you for that i would like to know andrea what book are we reading next our next book is Sense and Sensibility. For Ooh. sure. Jane Austen, the only other book ever seen being held by a woman in this show. And defaced <laughs> by another one. I'm still struggling with that. Same. <laughs> like, oh, it gives me the cringe. Well, I'm looking forward to that then. Oh, I've missed this. I've enjoyed it. I can't wait till the next time. Thanks everyone for joining us. Bye. 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 Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.